keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be looking mainly at the first 35 verses, a part of which Gabriel just read for us. And uh, we'll touch on uh, beginning with verse 36 uh, through verse 50 towards the end of the message. But mainly we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of the, the theology and a lot of the biblical teaching that is prevalent in the evangelical world, uh, a, a lot in the United States about signs of the times and looking for the second coming of Jesus and, and how certain scriptures have been used and whether or not they should be used uh, for these kinds of predictions. And before we jump into the study this morning, I, I wanna, uh, we want to do two things. One, one is obviously we, we always pray before the message. We want to do that. But also, uh, this, this message is, is um, a little bit different than the ones that we were, were used to in the sense that this, we are going to be covering a lot of material today. Uh, I'm going to challenge our church to, to take this material home and to study it. And because there, there's really no way that we can look at all of it the way that it needs to be looked at in one sermon this morning. So a lot of this is going to be prompting your mind, giving you some things to consider, to look at, and for you to take this material home and to make it your own, to study these scriptures and these points that we're going to be making, and, uh, and to come to, I think, uh, the right conclusions about, uh, about a lot of the, the theology and the, the, uh, the, the, the preaching about the end of the world and these kinds of things so prevalent in the religious landscape of the United States today. So that, with that said... Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into this lesson. Father, thank you for the opportunity once again for us to come together on this beautiful first day of the week. And not just the beauty of this day, and really not even the beauty of, of the encouragement and the, the, the greatness of fellowship that we, we experience, but when we come together, Father, like this, it's the, it's the, the beauty of your blessings that we see in each person, the the greatness of the gospel and knowing that, that you are our Father, our Creator, our Shepherd, our Savior, that you, Father, are working to, to bring all things back to you for all of eternity. And we are excited about the prospects, Father. And, and we, we look eagerly and enthusiastically to that day. And so bless us in this study, Father. We, we pray for eyes that see, ears that hear. And, and we ask, Father, that you will help us to understand completely. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the one who is coming back, the one that will gather us to himself. In his name we pray, amen. I want to begin with a story about a Bible study group that was discussing the unforeseen possibility of a person's sudden death. And the leader of the discussion said, you know, we're all going to die someday and none of us really know when, but if we did, if we really did know when we were going to die, we would probably do a better job of preparing ourselves for that inevitable event. And everybody in the group shook their heads in agreement, they, you know, but they wanted to make some comments. And the leader said, you know, what would you do if you knew you only had four weeks of life remaining before your death and the great judgment day? Comments, what would you like to do? Well, one 
fella said, you know, I would go out into my community and minister the gospel to those that have yet accepted the Lord into their lives. And everybody kind of liked that. They, they agreed that would be a very good thing to do. And then there was a lady that spoke up and she said, you know, if I knew I only had four weeks, I would dedicate all of my remaining time to serving God, my family, my church, my fellow man with greater conviction. That's wonderful, the leader commented, and all the other members of the group agreed that that would be a great thing to do. Finally, there was kind of a guy that was sitting in the back, and he spoke up, and he said loudly, I would go to my mother-in-law's house for four weeks. And everyone kind of scratched their head, and they puzzled a little bit, and finally the group leader asked, why would you go to your mother-in-law's home? And he said, because that would make it the longest four weeks of my life. You know, Christians do not know everything that there is about the second coming of Jesus, but there are some things that they do know. For instance, we know one day Jesus will return. We also know that what we know about the future, the fact that He is coming back one day, He will gather us together, we will spend all of eternity with, with, with God in heaven, that what we know about the future should affect the way that we live in the present. Peter had that same kind of concern, and so he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Jesus, at the very beginning of His ministry, not long after He has uh, been baptized by John in the Jordan River, He's up there on the northern end of the Sea of, of Galilee, not too far from Capernaum, and he's on that side of a mountain and he begins to teach people, his, his disciples, what it means to be kingdom people, to have the kingdom of God inside of them. And one of his teachings was about the future affecting how they live right now, specifically in the area of riches. And he says, don't store up in verse 19 of Matthew 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in where? In heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so between now, the day that we live today, and the time when we will see Jesus face to face, and as John says in 1 John chapter 3, we will become like Him because we see Him as He is, the issues of faith for the disciple of Jesus is this. What is seen versus what is unseen, and it will be the material versus the eternal. But because we are human beings, we're going to want to know when. We want to know when. What is the number one questions, a question that a kid will ask on a long, long trip? Are we there yet? How do you know you're at the end of an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? It's when he says, I'll be back. <laughs> when do you know a football game is nearly over? It's the two-minute warning. In fact, my wife thinks that that's the biggest lie in all of sports. <laughs> she thinks it should be called the two minutes stretched into a half hour warning. You know, I was blessed enough to grow, in a, uh, grow up in a family that went to church all the time. And when you're a little kid, what is the sign that you're at the end of a church service? It's the sound of people reaching for their hymnals. Didn't work then. I'm telling you right, it's not going to work today. <laughs> now, wanting to know when there might be an end is really typical of most human beings. And one of the great religious obsessions today is looking for signs of the end. 
Now, there was a book that was written in the 1970s, published in the 1970s. The title of it is The Late Great Planet Earth, which it, it didn't get everything rolling, but it kind of gave some momentum to the idea that we can predict from the Bible the signs of when Jesus is going to come back and the end of the world is going to take place. And according to the book, the, the, the end would come sometime in the 1980s, or within one generation, which is a reference to Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, that Gabriel read for us, and that one generation would be within that generation of the reestablishment of Israel as a state in 1948. Now, obviously, that did not happen, and so the authors had to recalculate the second coming and has recalculated it sometime in the middle of this century, give or take a few years, 2048. So the question is, did Christ give clues in his teachings about when the second coming would occur? And that's what brings us to Matthew chapter 24 this morning. It's one of the major passages used to define what the signs of the second coming are. The question we're going to answer this morning is, does Matthew 24 give us clues as to when we can expect Jesus to come again? The answer is, and I'm going to give you four reasons why I believe the answer is no. Although I think that he does talk about it. I'm going to give you four statements. The first one is this. The event, singular, the event described in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 35 has already happened. That uh, text that Gabriel read is describing an event that's already happened. Matthew chapter 24, let's begin with verse 34. He says, I tell you the truth, this what? This what? Generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. The words, these things, are the things that Jesus references at the beginning of the chapter when he says in verse 2, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now Jesus, at this point, has already disclosed to his disciples what is going to happen and what they should be anticipating and expecting when he gets to Jerusalem. He is going to be put to death by the religious authorities. And so we get to chapter 23, and Jesus delivers this, this scathing rebuke of Judaism. And Matthew 24, our chapter, opens up with the disciples walking with Jesus through the temple area, and the disciples are calling his attention to the magnificence of all of these buildings the temple that, that Herod the Great had built, the, the, or was building, the, the wall, Jerusalem, all of these great buildings. Now Matthew doesn't tell us why, why they do this, why they call Jesus' attention to all of this magnificent architecture. Now he doesn't tell us why they do this uh, after everything that Jesus has, has said about it, but maybe they want Jesus to say something a little positive, a little something positive at least about the beauty of the temple precinct. That maybe he doesn't have much good to say about Judaism, but maybe you know, he, he sees a temple and thinks that it's a gorgeous building and maybe begin to spin things in a positive direction. The problem is, is that Jesus doesn't do it. He tells them instead that what they see will not last, that what they are looking at will have a conclusion. A conclusion that these buildings are going to be destroyed, and so catastrophic will that be that when the dust settles, there's not going to be one stone on top of another. They're all going to be thrown down. Now, if you're Jewish, 
in the first century and you are well steeped in Old Testament Scripture about the importance of God's presence in Jerusalem Temple and all of that, and you know about the, the, the Assyrians carrying the, 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 uh, the Israelites, those ten tribes to the north, into captivity, then the Babylonians coming about 150 years later and, and tearing Jerusalem down and, and being carried off into captivity, the remaining Jews, then the fact that Jesus is talking about it happening again grabs your attention. Jesus is going to have to explain this. And on top of that... They know. They believe. They've dedicated their lives to Him for the last three years. Not perfectly, but they have completely dedicated themselves to Him as the Messiah. And if He is the Messiah, then why the destruction of the nation? Reformation of Judaism, we get. But why the destruction of the nation rather than the salvation of the Jews? And part of his explanation involves when this destruction, these things, will take place. And what he says is it's going to happen within the life of this generation. Now, if you believe ahead of time that this passage is speaking about the second coming of Jesus, that's the the attitude or the bias, the the mindset that you take to it, then, then you, you know, you... You have to do something with that phrase in this generation because Jesus did not return within the lifetime of that generation. I mean, believe it or not, we're still here 2,000 years later. Now, one way to deal with that and the way it's been dealt with, this issue of this generation and it not happening within the disciples' generation, is to take that fig tree that's mentioned in verse 32. Look in your Bible, verse 32. And you take that fig tree and you make it predictive and symbolic of the reestablishment of the state of Israel. Now, it is true that Jesus in Matthew chapter 21 uses the fig tree as a symbol of Judaism, the temple, but I don't believe that this is the way that he intends to use it three chapters later in Matthew 24. And the reason for that is Luke. Luke uh, has and Mark have parallel passages to Matthew 24. And what Luke says in his parallel passage, Luke 21 Look at verse 29. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and what? All the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves, and you know what? Summer is near. The point that Jesus is making is not about a fig tree specifically, but about all trees generally. When you see buds on a tree, it's a sign. And what is that sign? Spring is what? Spring is very near. And that's why Jesus says in the very next verse, Matthew 24, verse 33, these words, When you see all these things, you know that it's near right at the door. Now Jesus is teaching them about something that they will need to be able to discern when it's taking place around them. And He says it's going to happen within the time frame of this generation. This generation, biblically speaking, always refers to the people that are contemporary. It's a reference to the people around them, the contemporary people around them. So what is Jesus talking about that will happen within the lifetime of the disciples' generation that they're going to need to discern? Second statement. The event, again, this event described in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35, is a judgment of Judaism in general. The language that Jesus uses to describe the event in verse 35 is... Uh, going from uh, verse 1 all the way to verse 35, is apocalyptic. 
it's a language that's full of symbols and imagery, and it's a language of, of judgment. Now, simply put, when you read anything about the cosmos coming unraveled, it's a way that the Old Testament tries to convey not just God's judgment, but the awesomeness and the scope and the exhaustiveness of God's judgment on a nation. Here are some examples. In a prophecy out of Isaiah against Babylon, Isaiah in chapter 13 says, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be what? And the moon will not give its what? Its light. Same kind of language. You see it? That's against Babylon. Also in Isaiah chapter 34, there is a prophecy against Edom that uses the same kind of language, the language of judgment. In verses 4 and 5, Isaiah says, All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved, and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. And then over in Ezekiel chapter 32, the same kind of language, language of judgment against a nation. This time it's Egypt. And it says, When I snuff you out, I will cover the heavens, I'll darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens, I will darken over you. In the first century, when the Jews heard this kind of language, they did not think about the end of the world, but the end of a nation. And not just a nation uh, being destroyed, but a nation that is being judged by God. Now we go to Matthew chapter 24, and here's an example of this kind of language. Look at verse 30. At that time the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now at first glance, again, it looks to our 21st century Western eyes like a reference to Jesus' second coming. But this is what the first century Jews referenced when they heard him. Isaiah chapter 19, an oracle concerning Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. When these disciples heard Jesus use these words, what they thought of was judgment. They thought of the judgment of God coming. And it wasn't just, and what was, what was in particular of, uh, you know, just uh, shook them up, what, what was astonishing to them, especially being say, said by the Messiah, was that what they were hearing were the words of judgment, but it was going to be within their generation and it was coming against their own nation, Israel. Now that's one of the reasons why Jesus even says to the high priest Caiaphas before the Sanhedrin, and the question is, are you the Son of God? And he answers, yes, it is as you say, but I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And basically what Jesus is saying to Caiaphas is that even though you think you're sitting in judgment of me, I am sitting in judgment of you. And they got it. And that's what made them angry and, and, and escalate everything towards that crucifixion. 
And this leads to a third statement. The event described in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35, is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 specifically. Now, we've just come out of Matthew, a, a three-month study in our Bible classes, as well as I, I, I preached uh, Sunday mornings and Sunday nights through a three-month period that we were studying in, in those adult classes, the book of Matthew. One of the things that we really, uh, at least in the sermons, didn't have a chance to, to amplify or to really develop is this, this theme of judgment that you find in Matthew's gospel, I mean, from the beginning to the end. John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 3, is the one that gets it going. He says, when he sees many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming what? Wrath. In Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And after the parable of the tenants, where the owner sends to the tenants his son, hoping to, you know, to, to resolve the issue, and that son is killed by them, which is an indictment on Judaism, Jesus says in Matthew 21, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Who's he speaking to? The Jewish nation. And given to a people who will produce its fruits. And we begin to understand why the Jews were angry with the Christ. We go to Matthew 23. Look at verse 32, beginning in verse 32. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Sounds like Paul and others. Verse 35, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Now in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 16, there is this reference to the abomination that causes desolation. It's an Old Testament phrase that goes back to the book of Daniel and most thought that it had been fulfilled when that, that crazy Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, defiled the temple by bringing in you know, a, a swine into the Holy of Holies. Now it's interesting when you, again, you go to Luke's parallel. Luke chapter 21 this is in connection with the desolation. Luke explains it further and says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by what? Armies. You will know. You'll know what? That the, that desolation is near. And Jesus says, when you see that, then flee. Now, if this is really talking about the second coming of Jesus, does, when you think about it, does the instruction to flee, if this is the second coming, is the instruction to flee, does that make sense? 
Jesus says when you see that, the armies surrounding Jerusalem, you know that the desolation's near, then get out of the city and flee to the mountains. Don't waste any time getting things together. The escape time is going to be short. Pray that it's not during a time when travel is tough. Pray that you're not you know, pregnant with a child or that you have small children with you. you know, pray that it'll be happening at a time that is conducive to escape. And Josephus says that this very thing happened. We're not going to talk about the details of this. It's just, it, you know, Rome and the army come to Israel. And after destroying Galilee in the north, and there is a sea battle on the, on, on, on the, the, the Sea of Galilee that is horrendous. Even by modern technology, you know, 3D-driven people, it was horrendous. And after destroying Galilee in the north, that future emperor Titus and Tiberius, who's his second in command, they move against Jerusalem. And the Christians, because of the instructions of Matthew chapter 24, they flee that city. And they, they head and, and, and were told, uh, you know, some of them fled to, to Pella and to other places, but they fled the city while the Jews did the opposite and went into the city and closed the doors. And what Josephus, who was Jewish and was, was captured, and he's trying to, to write a history of the Jews as well as a history of the war to help uh, explain the Jewish nation to the Romans, what Jews, uh, Josephus describes in the first century, in first century writings, in the destruction of Jerusalem is, is so gory and grisly that we're, we're just not going to talk about it. But the suffering was gruesome. And the Romans took Jerusalem apart stone by stone that by the time the dust settled they were, and they were ready to move south to meet the remaining Jewish zealots at Masada. There was literally not one stone on top of another. And this was a shaking turn of events for the Jewish nation. And it happened within 40 years. That is a generation of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24. And at the same time, for the gospel to be able to go forward, what happened to Israel had to be explained. That God was no longer working through Israel, but through Christ and His church. There is, as Jesus said, one greater than the temple who is now here. And Israel has been judged. Last statement and we're done. The event described in Matthew 24 beginning in verse 36 and going to verse 50 is, I think, in my opinion, the surprising second coming of Jesus. When Jesus' disciples heard what he said about the destruction of the temple, they thought that it would be the end of the world. At least in their minds, because it was too catastrophic to even consider the possibility and the implications of that happening again. But the reality of the destruction of the temple would not be the end of the world. But what it did not mean was that there would be no second coming. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was not the end of the world, even though they would perceive it as such. But that did not mean that there would not be a second coming down the road. On the contrary, there would be. And that is what Jesus, I, begin, I believe, begins to address in the second half of Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36 specifically. And about that second coming, look at verse 42. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. That's why it's surprising. 
you're not going to know what day it's going to come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thieves were coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Now, I'm being facetious here, but you know, all of this talk about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all that, it, it seems to me that as long as all of that's happening, that's not a time to look. It seems that what Jesus is saying, especially in light of people giving in marriage and these sorts of things, that maybe a sign of His coming, and again, I'm being facetious here, the sign of His coming or no sign. It will be normalcy. Whatever normalcy is. It will be give, people giving in marriage and being taken in marriage. It will be days going on as days have always gone by. Therefore, be ready because you don't know. As in other places, Jesus says it's going to be like a thief in the night. You don't know. Therefore, watch. Therefore, be prepared. Not just in, in, in physically, but be prepared spiritually. The reality is, is that one day, everything that is talked about in the New Testament about everything being redeemed by God will come to pass. It will come when you least expect it. Therefore, be ready. The wisdom of the New Testament is be ready, be watchful, be prepared. And that's where I want to leave you this morning. Be prepared. The only way to be prepared is to be faithful in Christ. Which means if you're already in Christ, you've already been saved, you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus, you, it means be sober-minded, pure in heart. It means purifying yourself as He is pure. It means cleansing. It means staying away from the deeds of night and of darkness. Staying away from evil. Cultivating a taste for that which is holy and pure and good. Those things that Paul talks about in Philippians 4, that we're to think about and press our mind into. Things that are noble and beautiful and worthy. All of those things, that's what we're doing. We're serving the poor. We're serving our fellow man. We're, we're, we're spreading the gospel. We're spreading the good news. Of, of what God has accomplished in Christ that we could never do on our own, that we could never do by our own merit, by our own work, by our own strength. That's what we're doing in the meantime as we keep one eye on heaven. But if you've never given your life to the Christ, never confessed Him to be Lord, never, never changed your mind about Him, that's that biblical word repentance where we decide I'm not going in this direction, but that direction. In the direction of God. In the direction of His kingdom. In the direction of, of everything that He calls us to be. And our sins are washed away because we participate through baptism in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus being the first fruit of the resurrection, meaning the promise of more to come. That's what the first fruit was. Meaning all those who are in Christ. If you've never done that, don't wait. Do not wait. You do not know when He will come. And then it will be too late. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now during the standing of that song. Our shepherds are going to come down to the front. If we can minister to you in any way, then come and let those needs be known. Let's stand and sing together.